helps to set aside all the distractions, the things that we we think we need to be worried about, what you have for us this morning. And Dallas Shaw. All right, uh, so this week, well, the Lord's hand has been heavy upon me <laughs> these past few weeks, as a matter of fact, following up after Joe Terry, and uh, first time out of the gate, I'm teaching on predestination. So, we're, you know, when you look up, you're like, has thing, have things gotten that bad that they've got him up there, right? <laughs> Are we really at that point, okay? And so it, it's, it's doubly daunting being a Marine, because, again, you know what, the, what Marine stands for. Uh, muscles are required, intelligence, not essential, okay? So this has been my emoji for the past week up here. <laughs> so this is also stolen from the Unitarian Universalists who don't really know which way to go with it either, okay? So this is, uh, hopefully this won't be as daunting for you all as it was for me, and hopefully we'll all come out of this with uh, something of value. So let's go to, we'll go ahead and pray real quick and then uh, get into it. Dear blessed God in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for these men. These, this, this time has been such an amazing blessing to me. Lord, it really has turned the corner for me in terms of being your chosen, in terms of being someone useful to you. So, Lord, I pray that these words and our study this morning would be useful to you. Lord, but more than that, it, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we doers of the word. They would make a change in our lives. We love you, God, and we ask all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him we were also chosen or made heirs, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so what I took from this was three key things. First, that there is a plan, okay? And that that plan, we were chosen not only according to the plan, but we were cho chosen as agents of the plan. Then the second part is that the plan will be effected by bringing everything into conformity with God's will. And that the reason of this plan that God has effected is to the praise of his glory. So when you're a hammer, everything tends to look like a nail, okay? So when you're a jarhead, uh, everything looks like something you've seen in the past. And this, to me, looks like a commander's intent. A commander's intent is nothing more than a social contract. It's a social contract between a commander and a subordinate. What it does is allows, here is enough guidance that I can set him loose, right, and they can make decisions within this guidance and take the initiative without having to constantly come back and ask for permission to act, okay? So in that, you have three things in a commander's intent. First, you have the purpose, the method, and the end state. The purpose, the why. Why are we doing what it is we're doing? The method, how. How does the commander envision that this thing would unfold, okay? And then finally, the end state of the final result desired. This is what success would look like. It's a success statement. It's a goal statement. This is what it would look like if we succeeded. The two most important parts of this are the first, the first and the last one, the purpose and the end state. Those are the things that guide the action, okay? So what did I pull out of this as our commander's intent? Our commander's intent, first, the purpose, is the redemption of those who are God's possession. 
And this is interesting because you could also fill in there the redemption of those who are God's chosen. How is he going to do it? Interesting, through the chosen, okay? He's, he's going to redeem the chosen through the chosen, okay, who've been made party to this, predestined according to God's plan. To what end? Okay, what's the ultimate purpose? The praise of his glory. Everything guides our actions after that. As long as we're within that, we need not go back and constantly ask, hey, should I do this? We already know if we can do it, okay? So the question here that, that threw me off a little bit here in terms of doing my little Greekology or whatever is this idea of a kleros. So the first time I saw this word kleros was from a book called Gates of Fire, one of my favorite books about the Spartans at Thermopylae. They would talk about their kleros or their farm or their inherited piece of land that passed down through their families, okay? But in this sense... It comes out in either the active or the passive voice, okay? In the active voice, it means that we've obtained an inheritance. In the passive voice, it means that we've become one, okay? And at different points in the Bible, it is both, okay? We have both inherited one and become an inheritance, okay? What's been amazing to me, though, is that from Vines, uh, New, New Testament ex word expository, and from this guy, John R. Stott, who is the rector of uh, All Souls Church in London, it's this sense that they, they think it more appropriately applies to the Old Testament usage of it, which is this idea that we're grafted into Israel as God's inheritance, okay? And I think this falls perfectly in line with what we just studied in Romans, which is this idea that we've become adopted as sons into God's inheritance. But this, this actually means something, that we weren't simply chosen to receive an inheritance, but to be one, to add value, to add value to God, which is kind of amazing. I don't see, I mean, this is a perfect example of it. I shouldn't be adding value to anybody, okay? But the plan, what's amazing here, is that we're not only the executors of the plan, okay, but we're the purpose of it. I mean, that, that's challenging, okay? So you have this idea that we're co-workers with Christ. You go back in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, this idea, and, and my son and I were reading last night in Acts that, Paul is God's chosen instrument, his tool, right? That we're co-workers, that we're useful somehow in the plan, and that we're the subject of it, that we're the purpose for it, okay? So then we get this idea of what is a plan or purpose, and it's talking about this, the Greek word prothesis, okay? This showing forth or the showbread or, or letting us in on the plan. What's amazing is that we're not only chosen according to the plan, right? but we're chosen as agents in support of the plan. Now, this whole idea of a plan is very close to my heart because this is pretty much what I do in the Marine Corps or with Marines now. I'm retired. But uh, I teach planning, you know, and planning is nothing more than anticipatory decision-making. It's our attempt to deal with the future in uncertainty. So what we do is we take the problem, we take what we think the enemy is going to do, and we come up with a problem framing. We say, hey, this is the extent of the problem. Whoa, okay, great. Then we're going to do about it. solution development. Okay, we call it COA development, or course of action development. We come up with possible courses of action that might solve that problem or deal with what we anticipate the enemy is going to do. Then what do we do? We test it. We say, hey, based on our possible solutions, which ones are going to work, or which one are the most robust, which ones aren't going to fall apart the moment it starts. Here's the only problem: is that there's a nearly infinite combination of variables that aren't only immeasurable; it's impossible to identify. Right? That's why we say, hey, no plan survives first contact. Okay? So, let's just take something that's fairly uncomplex called, like, chess. Okay? Where, 
at the start, the potential positions that are available at the start of the game are 10 to the 128th power. Now, this is interesting because the estimated number of atoms in the universe is only 10 to the 80th power. All right? So if we have a game, right, that only has 32 pieces, 64 squares, and two players, right, and it has more possible combinations than the number of atoms in the universe, right, now consider God's system that he created. Billions of people living at any given time, right, each with unique and discrete motives and desires, right, whose motives and desires they don't even know. That's why we have bartenders and psychiatrists to help you figure them out, right? It creates trillions upon trillions of individual interactions between each of these humans, and each of these trillions upon trillions of individual interactions are impossible to predict individually and impossible to predict corporately, okay? Yet, we serve a God who says, who makes this bold statement that he has not just numbered the hairs on my head, he's numbered the hairs on the head of every person that ever lived, who is living, and who will ever live. He's the God that says that his eyes saw our unformed body and didn't just see it, he made it. And that he numbered and ordained every one of our days, every step that we would take before we took the first one. So when we look at this, this is his problem framing. He knows every single thing that will ever be done or ever be thought by every person in every situation because he's omniscient. Okay? He knows he's the only fully actualized being. He's the only one that's not contingent, not latent. There is nothing left over or yet to be done in him. There is only one co in him, one course of action. It's his will and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Okay, and then wargaming. He tests these possible solutions. God knew everything that we would do, full agency. God knew everything that he would do, full agency. And then somehow, where those two interact, that's his plan. I have been waiting forever to use this cartoon and actually have it make sense, right? Up to this point, it's used as this kind of like cop-out that, hey, we, you know, the world's complex, can't deal with it. But we know the purpose. The purpose is the redemption of his inheritance. We know the end state, the praise of his glory, and there is a miracle that actually does occur in the middle of this one that's fully appropriate. And what's that miracle? It's God's view of our Savior, okay? So I looked, and, you know, it used to, if it doesn't blow your mind to read Revelation 13, 8, where Jesus is the Lamb of God who's slain before the foundation of the world. No one had sinned yet. Why? How's he slain before anybody? There's not even sin. There's no reason to do it yet. And yet he is, okay? Isaiah 53 used to completely floor me, and again, it gave me great joy that this was settled, settled stuff. Then 701 B.C., 700 years before Jesus is born, give or take, and about 730 years before he dies, God, speaking through the prophet, says that he grew up before him, past tense, that he had no beauty, past tense, to attract us to him, that he was despised and rejected by man. He was despised by us, and we esteemed him not, right? He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgression, and the, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He uses the past, the present, and the future in one, one psalm, right? So we're dealing with someone that is clearly not of our time, okay? And this used to throw me off. Why would he change their names? <laughs> I mean, no one changed my name, not yet anyway, right? 
Okay, so Abram, uh, Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Why? And I've realized that the problem here that I'm dealing with anyway is time. And so while I'm nerding out and driving in my car and picking my nose, and I realize, it's like, I wonder, the only place that the present doesn't exist is here. The only place in, is in creation that the present doesn't exist. So I totally nerding out, went to thenakedscientist.com, and I'm starting to read some of their blogs. And one of the ideas was that we arbitrarily break up time into past, present, and future. So the things that we're going to do, we say, take place in the future. The things we have done, we say take place in the past. The things we are doing, we say take place in the present. The problem is, when you start looking at this infinitesimally small thing we call the present, right? Then you go a little deeper. When you look at it, it's either infinitely small and unuseful, or it doesn't even exist, right? So you can nerd out here for a little bit if you like reading about Max Planck and how he you know, figured out what's the smallest amount of time possible right, or what's the smallest amount of time that would constitute the present. But if the present doesn't exist here, then where does it exist? And what of eternity? So I went to this uh, fundraiser for Reason for Truth, this apologetic thing, and there's this guy, J. Uh, Thomas Bridges, who's up there, and he knocked my socks off because he's like, this idea of eternity past, eternity future is nonsensical, right? He goes, if anything, it's anthropomorphic. It's us trying to add time to the timeless. It's either the absence of time, right, or infinite present. So if there is no present here, only past and future, and in God, there's no past or future, just infinite present, who cares? <laughs> Other than me, this is bud, right? Who cares? He does. God does. God is the great I am. When Moses asked, who should I say sent me? Business card. It's like, tell him I am sent you. God, the eternal. God, the one who dwells in eternity. The God who is outside of time. He's the one who sent you. Okay? And yet, when we look up there, in Christ, Abraham, Abram was always Abraham. Sarah was all, or Sarai was always Sarah. Jacob was always Israel from God's perspective. From God's perspective, Simon was always Peter and Saul was always Paul. He saw the completion, fully actualized in Christ. That's how he sees us, okay? And yet, in verse 13, then it goes and becomes a contingent statement. He says, and so you were included in Christ when you heard, when you believed, then you were marked. It's an if and then. It's a, it's a when and then thing. It's contingent. So what we're left with is that before time began somehow, that God chose us first and as a result we chose him even before the creation of the world so the question then is for me because we have to make this practical why would God take such effort to tell us about the future so far in the past or or before there even is a past before there is anything that we would construct as the past right one of my favorite movies of all time is Lawrence of Arabia so in this one, they're riding across, they're riding across the desert on these camels, and then this Arab named Gassim falls off in the middle of the night. I don't know how, I'd be like, ah, help, help, you know, and run and try to get on. But apparently, he didn't say anything. And he just falls off into the food, and they keep going for hours. And then all of a sudden, they realize he's gone. Lawrence of Arabia's like, oh, my God, he feels terrible about it because he's responsible for this operation. So he's like, I'm going to go back and get him. So he starts heading back to go get him. Right? And they're like, and all the Muslim Arabs around there are like, hey, look, it's written. This guy's... 
God, Allah wanted this to happen. You're not only arrogant to think you can, but a little her her heretical to think that you're going to undo something that God's written. And so Lawrence Arabi says, nothing is written. He goes back and he actually saves the guy, right? Which leads me to two possible, or three possible conclusions. One, lazy fatalism, right? Ah, oh, hands off, man. I can sit on my couch and do nothing. You know why? God's got it. I've got nothing to do with it. It's already settled. Why well, pray? My son asked me that. He's like, God already knows what he wants to do. He's already going to do it. Why am I? You know, but I know I'm supposed to, you know. And as a jarhead, that's comforting. It does what it's told, right? Okay, arrogant humanism. It's this idea that, hey, I actually control this thing. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I, can, I get to chart the course. Probably not accurate. Then there's Christian real, realism, I think. Christian realism is this. He chose us, so we chose him. Now we belong to him and work for him. Pretty simple, okay? I think it should inspire us to boldness and peace. That's the purpose in my mind. So in March of 2003, we're sitting outside of this, this city called Nazaria. Y'all remember Jessica Lynch. She gets captured. We're getting ready to go in. First big fight of the war. I'm looking over to the right. There's this giant trash heap that's two stories high and the size of a small city. At night, we're waiting our turn to go through the gauntlet. I'm looking at Nazaria. It looks like Dante's Inferno because there's no lights on in the town. There's fires everywhere and our artillery, either they're lost or they're like really angry. They're pushed up to the town and they're, 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 their deflection are nearly flat, like they're firing into the town, right? And we're waiting our turn. And so as usual, you get bum scoop. And the bum scoop was, hey, uh, 40 Marines have been killed and 40 Marines captured. And we're like, oh. Was like, is there a lava monster in there? What's, I mean... <laughs> What, what's waiting for us, you know? So my, my company commander and I were like, we're looking at our, the letters you write home. And so I'm like, this is going to get messy if I get hurt. So I was like, here, you take mine. I'll take yours, right? We tuck them in. That way, if, if I get hit, it's nice and clean. It was sure laziness because he didn't want to have to rewrite them. So, you know, like clean the stuff off and rewrite the thing, right? But after that and after praying and after confessing, absolute peace and boldness. I don't mean reckless. I was never reckless. But the point is, I was allowed to be courageous. I was allowed to be bold and not be completely undone. Why? I was not going to die a second earlier or a second later than I was supposed to. Not one thing was going to happen to me that God didn't already ordain. Absolute peace. Not, not the absence of fear, but absolute peace through it. And I think that's what he wants with us here. We don't have to worry about whether or not if I preach the gospel to this person, if he's going to get saved. Not my problem, right? I have to care. I have to invest. I have to love that person. And then God takes care of it. Okay, so why does he tell us where he's clear his, his, his inheritance? I think that everybody in here, if you're here, you accepted Jesus Christ, you're an officer in the army of the Lord. And it's not about us anymore. The moment you accept that commission, it's not about you anymore. So verse 13b, what it comes out with, you believed and you were marked in him with a sfargazio. I don't know. I didn't probably pronounce that terribly. But that's the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, to what end? Verse 14, it's a deposit, an arabon in Greek. The idea, and I love this part, is it's a down payment or, in modern Greek, an engagement ring. We're the ones wearing the engagement ring, right? He is signing that we belong to him. Not a down payment of something we're going to receive, although we will right? This is his down payment, his mark, that we belong to him. We belong to him, but why? To what end? And this is what I think the whole thing sums up to. 
It's the mission of BCC. Why are we in Christ? Why did he save us before, the time, before time began? To know Christ and to make him known. That's our task. So what's our purpose? The why? Why are we alive? Why do you wake up? Why do you exist? Why has Christ saved us? To the glory of his praise. And so what I would leave us with here is this. Why are we what do we sacrifice for our wives? To the glory of his praise. Why do we ignore a slight at work? To the glory of his praise. Why do we wake up every day and say we're just so thankful to God because he loves us? And it's to the glory of his praise. That's all I have. So, thank you.